0: It's here for the band, yeah. y'all, uh, they, uh, it's hot there, but they soldier on with all this, uh, so they're, they're killing it, uh, they're doing real good, um, thanks y'all. What's up? Good morning, my name is Joel, we're going to talk about play today, and I'm real excited because the last few times I've spoken here. It's been about really heavy stuff like forgiving yourself and being angry with God and all this other stuff. So today I get to lighten it up a little bit and I'm really excited about it. So, you get to be here for it. Um, We're in the middle of our Theology of series and so we're going through a bunch of different topics that all kind of tie back to wisdom and what wisdom means in the eyes of God and what wisdom is in scripture and how we define that. Uh, So, we're going to start first with a reading from Proverbs. I'm only going to put a couple of verses on the screen. I'm going to read more than I'm going to put on the screen because it would have just been a nightmare to type it all out. Uh, But it's Proverbs 8. I'm going to start in verse 22. We're going to put 30 and 31 on the board. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the Earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made <clears throat> excuse me when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the Earth. then I was beside him, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always rejoicing in his, in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Now, this, uh, this particular proverb is famous because it's a proverb about wisdom, and it personifies wisdom. It personifies wisdom as a woman. And all the ladies are nudging their husbands like, Don't. wisdom, no one likes that joke, I guess. He's too sexist or something. I thought it was funny. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, stuff about that. We're not going to go into it because this is the theology of play, not the theology of starting an argument with everybody in the room. Um, in verses 30 and 31, what's going on is that we, we have this sense of wisdom as a child at play. And I don't like that. Because in our culture, we kind of have this idea of wisdom is like this old man on a mountain in a robe with a long grizzly beard and he's serious and he's severe and he's wise because he's old and he's seen a lot. With age comes wisdom and all that. But here, what scripture is telling us is that there's wisdom in this exuberance that comes with youth and the kind of joyous exploration and wonder that uh, childhood and youth brings out. The image we have here is of a child playing in the creation that her father is making as she plays. And it's a really nice image, I think. It kind of lightens things up. And it kind of lets us turn loose and realize that wisdom is something that's a little lighter and a little more fun than maybe we would originally thought. Friedrich Nietzsche, he's one of the most famous uh, atheist philosophers. He was famous for having said that if Christians ever want me to believe in their God... They'll have to sing me better songs because I can only believe in a God who dances. In, the, uh, in our worship team Bible study before we started today, uh, Colby brought us uh, the story of the Scopes Monkey Trial, and the, I forget the name of the lawyer who was on the side of the scientists, said famously that a Christian is a person with a deep and resounding fear that somebody, somewhere is having a really good time. And it's not for nothing that people think that about the Christian faith. Because all that people really hear from the church in general is just a lot of do's and don'ts and the talking about the commands of the Bible and the laws of the Bible and what the Bible says you can and can't do. And all that stuff is important. And I don't mean to diminish it or act like it's not a significant part of, of who we are and what we do. But there's other stuff in the Bible. There's a lot of really cool stuff that doesn't have anything to do with uh, the law and what you are commanded to do and commanded not to do. There's some stuff that gives us permission to enjoy the life around us. We just don't do a good job of expressing that, I don't think. We get really bogged down and tied down to those things. Um, I grew up as a preacher's kid. And I, I enjoyed... Growing up in a preacher's family, I think, because I don't know any different. I'm, turned out okay, reasonably. My mom is here, incidentally. She can, yeah, she can tell whether I, I've got some friends here too. I'm not going to embarrass everybody by pointing them out. But we grew up in a preacher's family, and growing up, I always got this question from people, what's it like being a preacher's kid? I don't know. I've never been anything other than a preacher's kid. I don't have anything to compare it to. Would you go to church a lot? And that question always came from somebody who never went to church anyway. So I just kind of figured that going to church at all would be going to church a lot to somebody who never went to church in the first place. like, I don't know. What does your dad do? My dad's a cop. I'm like, would well, you spend a lot of time in jail? Like, I don't know. What's What's the sensible thing? People would ask, I'd talk, you know, Did you get to go trick-or-treating when you were a kid? I'm like, yes, we did. And then my first trick-or-treat, first Halloween, my dad took me and my sister Julie trick-or-treating. I was four. My costume was a little devil. So the preacher's son, four years old, dressed as the devil, going and asking people for candy. So we had a good time growing up. Uh, My mom is going to kill me for telling this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway because I told it the last one. Both my parents had an interesting way of waking us up in the morning. Uh, My mom is a little more exuberant, and so she would come into the bedroom and turn on the lights and then sing at the top of her lungs, it's time to rise and shine, and she sang the entire song. If you ever went to summer camp, you know the song, and it just goes on and on. She would sing that. My dad's was a little more subtle, but when you're 15 and grumpy because it's 6 o'clock and you have to go to school, it didn't really matter. He'd come in, turn on the lights and knock on the door and say, time to get up, it's going to be a great day. And all you can think is, "Uh," that's all you can think because you're 15 and you're angry about high school. I went to an elementary school at Barry College. If you're not familiar with how that works, Barry College has a, a really good education program and so they have an elementary school on campus goes from kindergarten through fifth grade. I went there through third grade. And the way it worked, it's a beautiful campus, huge campus, wildlife preserve, and the elementary school was nestled way in the back. And so what they would do is they had, there was a parking lot up front, uh, in the front of the campus, and there were two buses. You'd get dropped off in the morning, you'd get on the buses, you'd ride back like two or three miles to the school. Always really pretty drive because there's deer and beautiful lakes and all this stuff. It's a really neat place to go to school. My mom always took us to school in the mornings. And every now and then, we wouldn't make it in time for the bus, because there was never a set schedule at Barry. It was just kind of like, whenever, and then you'd go to school. And so sometimes you'd get there, and the bus would be pulling away. So my mom and I, my mom would drive me up there, and she would always make up these songs on the way to school about anything and everything, about we're going to beat the bus to school or whatever. She'd come up with songs for our names. And it's it just a fun way to start the day off. Because it wasn't just a boring, like, yeah, no, we're driving to school. Like, there was something fine and exuberant and, and lighthearted about it. My dad, the typical routine when I was in, at that school, my dad would generally pick me up. We had early release days. He'd take the rest of the day off from work, and he'd pick me up from school. And he'd take me every time. We'd go to Long John Silver, because we love good seafood. <laughs> and because we lived in Rome and not Savannah, so you had Long John Silver, you had nothing. So we go to Long John Silver and then we go home. And then we would either play Battleship or play with my G.I. Joe's. And when you're a kid and you're playing G.I. Joe's, it's like, it's down here. It's not like on a tabletop, you're not standing, you know. And so my dad would always, he'd always have his suit on, he'd come home, he'd take off his jacket, roll up his sleeves, loosen his tie, and get on the floor and play G.I. Joe's with me. And it was fun. And we had a good time. Uh, one of the, I guess the funniest thing about the perceptions people have as a preacher's family, uh, we are at Rome First United Methodist Church, and it was just really traditional. I mean, staying, it was a gorgeous church, stained glass windows, but I mean, everything matched everything. And if I had gotten up on, in front of everybody in uh, blue jeans and a shirt untucked and cowboy boots, people would have, like, burned me at the stake. That kind of church. So dad always wore a suit when he was at church and during the week at work. And this is all going somewhere, I promise. But I have to take a few detours. So we were also members of the country club because that came with being a part of the church. And we played tennis as a family. It's just something we all did even like when I was little. we had played tennis. It was a lot of fun. And this was during the time when you couldn't even play tennis if you weren't wearing all white. So it was white shorts, white shirt, white socks, white tennis shoes, whatever. So we'd gone to play tennis. Gone home, changed clothes, gone to play tennis, and come back on the Sunday afternoon. My oldest sister had a date that's, uh, this particular Sunday afternoon. <clears throat> and we, the guy, had, he and my sister had gone out several times. He, was, he knew the family, his family went to the church. It wasn't the first time he'd met my sister or my family. So he goes to pick my sister up. He knocks on the door. My dad comes to the door, and he's wearing his tennis clothes because we just got home. And for some reason, Mark was acting really strange that day. He wouldn't look my dad in the eye. wouldn't come into the house. just felt really ill at ease, and there was something up. We didn't know what it was, and it was strange because, like I said, he was familiar with the family. So my sister goes, gets in his car. She said, Mark, what? why are you acting so strange? She said, Jenny Beth why did your dad come to the door in his underwear? She said, what are you talking about? Well, in his mind, because he'd only ever seen my dad in a suit, he assumed, this is true, he assumed that if my dad wasn't in a suit, he must not have any other clothes. And so if he wasn't wearing a suit and he was wearing tennis clothes, that must mean that he was in, it looked like underwear to him. So he was mortified. Incidentally, I thought about doing this message in gym shorts and a t-shirt, and more than one person here told me that if you do that, everyone will think you are in your underwear. Don't visualize it, but I would just, out of respect for y'all not having to see my chicken legs, I decided I would dress like I normally dress. We had a good time in my family growing up as a preacher's family. We just enjoyed life. We did stuff together, we had a good time. It wasn't always serious. Because the Bible doesn't say it has to be. I Have a quiz, it's a really hard quiz. Uh, It's two questions. First of all, ignoring every other part of the Bible after Genesis one, pretend it's the only book, the only chapter of the only book in the Bible we have. No exegetical stuff, pretend you don't know anything else. In Genesis one, what is the purpose given for God creating the universe? And if you know it, shout it out. It's a trick question, because there's no reason given whatsoever. God just created it out out of the blue, because he wanted to. He didn't have a responsibility to anybody to create it. He wasn't under mandate. He wasn't commanded to. He just did it one day because he decided to. And it was good. It was good by virtue of having been created. It didn't need to be a reason. It was just creation for the sake of itself. Quick, what's the longest book in the Bible? Say it like you mean it. Psalms. Okay. What is Psalms? Songs. It's poetry. It's just prose. The longest collection of, of, of a single book in the Bible is just a book of praise and poetry and people writing stuff in response to what they see in the world around them that God has done. I'm going to share a few with you. There's 150 of them. I, you know, read them. They're awesome. I'm not going to read all 150, though, so it won't be that long of a message. But just, I mean, pick any one of them. Psalm 8. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound, with lute and harp, with tambourine and dance, with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with the loud clashing cymbals and let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Derek and I were talking before today and I meant to look it up, but uh, in the New Testament, Jesus spends a lot of time going to feasts, going to weddings, going to parties, going to celebrations. I mean, the book of Luke is pretty much centered around different celebrations and different meals that Jesus had with people. And it seems that Jesus was not really all that concerned with looking dignified because he hung around certain people so much that he got a reputation for being a drunken, gluttonous buffoon. I don't think Jesus was, but he didn't seem too concerned that there were people that might think that about him because he hung around with other people who were having a good time. And yet, we just get kind of worried that uh, we, you know, we we got to be seen as doing the right thing and, and, and saying the right thing and being around the right people. The Bible seems to condone a reckless abandon for our dignity. I mean, dignity isn't born in a barn and crucified on a cross. And dignity doesn't hang around with people who are undignified, but countless times in the Bible, we see David dancing before the ark, uh, completely reckless abandoned, stripping off his clothes because he's trying to glorify God, and just showing how careless he is about what people think because he is so devoted to praising the Lord. And so we have this proverb that talks about The childlike uh, abandon, the childlike wonder at the creation of the world. Jesus talks about people coming to him with faith like a child. And I don't think it's just about the idea of trusting the way a child trusts, but I think there's something about the wonder and the awe that children have at the world around them that God wants from us. Not the over analytical, let's explain everything away and, you know, but just coming to God as somebody who's amazed at who he is. I, when I was really little, and I, I might be the only one who ever experienced this, but I remember being little and being in the car and looking out the window at night and seeing the moon. And to me, it always looked like the moon was chasing the car. Does anybody remember that? Is that like a thing? Because few people looked at me like I was weird. It, anyway, but it's just seeing the world with new eyes. And, and so we have this perception, oh, that the wisdom is this age and experience and thing, but the Bible's saying, no, wisdom is this carelessness and this amazement at what God's doing and what God has done. Wisdom is a child playing. It's amazing to me. I don't have children of my own, but I have nieces and nephews. Um, two of them are here today. I have two sisters and a brother. Brothers in between the two sisters. They're all older. The oldest sister has twins. Uh, they're here today. Nicholas is like mini-me. Like, you look at him now, and it was a snapshot of me when I was his age. And the poor kid has this to look forward to. It's going to be great. Um, and it's interesting to me that each of the kids in, the, in all of this, uh three nieces, four nephews now, each of them individually has their own uh, personality, but then as as a family unit, they each have like a, a, a thing with each other um, so Nicholas and Nicole like to play games a lot, and it 's always fun when, when they 're visiting because they they get these games out and they have like pickup sticks and put and take and uh, jacks and these games that i 'm really bad at, and they just destroy me at them, and they get a lot of joy out of beating me. And I'm not good at games, so I just kind of take it all in stride, but they just, they enjoy just playing these games and getting everybody involved in it, and just hearing them laugh and enjoy themselves is really awesome. Individually, my niece Nicole uh, has talked about wanting to be an art teacher. And as an artist, I'm like, yeah, go after that. Uh, And Nicholas has talked about wanting to design and build buildings. That's awesome. Or 11. You're 11, right? 11? They're 11, and these are the things that, that they talk about wanting to do, and it's awesome. My brother's little girl is all about imagination and play and princess stuff and tea parties, and she is just 100% all girl, just all the way. And I, it's kind of hard to connect with that, because I'm not. <laughs> but uh, But she just loves... the the imagination and pretend and dress up and all that stuff. And it's just a lot of fun to hear her get into it and she just enjoys it and she takes this big bright smile that lights up the room and she just gets tickled at the smallest stuff. My sister Julie, her kids are kind of this inquisitive um, and not necessarily analytically minded, but they like to learn and explore. Um, I remember my niece Jessica, she was about five. We were out uh, Thanksgiving or something, everybody was around. and um, There were no hummingbirds around. But she says to me, she's five years old, she says, Uncle Joel, did you know that hummingbirds are the only birds that can fly backwards and can't walk? She's five. I didn't know that. No, Jessica. And then I felt like it had to match her wits. Like, well, did you know the human head weighs eight pounds? And she didn't really care about that. But she just knew this. Five. I don't know how she knew it. Um, we, my sister Julie just had another, she had a, her fourth little boy. And uh, I was over there visiting. And my nephew, Charlie, he's the oldest brother in that family. He came up to me and said, Uncle Joel, did you know? Sometimes, I go to the park and run around in circles. I said, Charlie, do you want me to take you to the park so you can run around in circles? He said, yes. I said, okay. So I took them out to the park so they could run around in circles. They gave my sister and the baby a time to kind of get quiet. I took them out. And so there's a, a bench swing. And there's a little, little brother, Jason. He kind of is just along for the ride right now. And they're on this bench swing, all three of them. And I'm pushing them. And there's a crab apple tree right above it. And Charlie says, what are these? I said, those are crab apples. He said, apples? Can you eat them? No, you can't really eat crab apples, Charlie. He said, why not? And Jessica said, because they're poisonous. I should have left it at because they're poisonous, because the conversation would have ended right then. But I didn't, because I'm stupid, and so I said, they're not poisonous, they just don't taste very good. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, they're real tart, they're bitter, they're just not the kind of thing that people like to eat. And he said, well, Uncle Joel, you know that some people like foods that other people don't like. Perfectly Socratic logic from a seven-year-old, and I can't argue. That. This is a kid who eats chicken tenders and french fries and ranch dressing, and that's it. And he's all of a sudden wanting to try crab apples. And I could just see the gears turning. Like, how can I get away from Uncle Joel so that I can eat some crab apples and find out what they taste like? And I never let him out of my sight for the rest of the afternoon because I didn't want to hear about it later. But it's fun to watch them in their exuberance. And they're just not concerned with anything. And I miss that. As you get older and you start having responsibilities, and then you can't, you can't do that anymore. Well, you can, but it's easier to make excuses not to, isn't it? As an artist, people come up to me sometimes and say, "You know, my little boy or my little girl loves to draw." Okay. I don't mean to sound cynical, but duh. You'll hear people say, "My kid loves to kick the football." Or my kid loves to climb trees. Or my kid loves to learn about science or whatever. And I think what you're really saying is that your kid is a kid. And that's not special. And I don't mean that in a cynical mean way. I mean that that's what kids do. That's not unusual. Kids love to draw and to create stuff and learn stuff. That's because they're new humans. They haven't experienced any of this. Of course they love doing that stuff. It's only after you get older that you get all that knocked out of you with, well, is it going to make you a lot of money? Are you going to be able to make a career out of it and all this stuff? And that's important. And I don't mean to diminish the significance of those things because it is important that we learn how to work and we learn how to, to provide. But there's something to be said for not forgetting that when we're born and when we're children, we're as close to the core of our humanity as we'll ever be. And there's something pure and honest about being able to play without worrying and without being concerned with how it looks, and without being concerned with what responsibilities you have, and just letting go and having a good time. We're such a performance-driven society. We have to quantify everything. We don't know if it's a good movie if we don't know how much money it made. You know, We don't know if someone's a good athlete unless we know how you know, expensive their contract was. We don't know if we're leading a good life unless we can have a lot of stuff to show for it. We go on vacations and we come home, and what's the first thing we say we need? is another vacation. I mean, we ruin having fun by making it work. And we can't just take pleasure in the simple things the way children do. More adults that, I've, that I speak to lament the fact that they didn't keep up that childhood passion, whatever it was. I wished I'd kept on playing piano. I wished I hadn't given up that passion I had for science. I wish that I had continued to learn how to paint. No one ever gets to a point in their life where they say, you know, I wish I'd made more money, or I wish I'd gone to work more. It's always that fun, joyous, easy stuff that we wish we'd done more of. And scripture is giving us permission to enjoy that stuff to take pleasure in life. It doesn't have to be work and drudgery all the time. And yes, there are laws and commands and things that we're supposed to do and things that we're not supposed to do. But there's also this stuff that we're given permission to do just because it's good. We don't need a reason for it. I mean, the world around us is enough reason to take pleasure and take joy and, and to be awestruck by what's going on around us. The first thing that God did was to create something. And then after he created it and saw that it was good, he put an image of himself into that creation. And that's you and me. And every now and then I hear somebody say, I don't have a creative bone in my body. Or make some remark about how frivolous those kind of pursuits are. And I think if God created and we're created in his image, then that must mean Some of that creative desire in God is in us. And how terrible a thing to diminish the image of God in you because you don't think he put it in you in the first place or because you think it's silly or a waste of time. If it's in God, it's good. And if it's in God, then it's in us. And we do good not to forget that there's kind of this perception that this world is a proving ground, that we're here, we're alive, and it's fine. But As Christians, what we're called to do is to live as much like Jesus as we can, do the right things, uh, say the right things, and then when it's all said and done, if we've done it the right way, we'll get to heaven. And this time right here is just we're passing through until we get there. And there is some truth to that. But there's more because there's stuff right here that God put here for us to enjoy. have a hard time thinking that God would put that there for a place we're just passing through. Have a hard time accepting the fact accepting the notion that God would create something so beautiful if we weren't supposed to stop and take notice of it from time to time and enjoy it because he created it and it's good. This world was created by God for the purpose of pointing back to him. That's why God did it. And he put us here because he wanted somebody to enjoy what he took the time and the love to create. In the creation narrative, there's two of them. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates all this stuff and it's good. And then we get to a point where he creates man and it's not good that he's alone. The only thing that wasn't good in God's creation is that he just created one. And there's a lot to be said for the, you know, the theology of marriage and romance and all this other stuff. But at the very core of that is that God created a world that he wanted us to enjoy together in companionship and in fellowship with one another. Not only did God create a beautiful world, but he created beautiful people for each other. And it's good. So where does that leave us? William P. Brown, um, he's a professor at a seminary nearby. Um, He says that to live in wisdom's world is to sit awestruck outside, to experience the joy of discovering creation anew, to enjoy the delight of discernment and the thrill of edifying play. My challenge to you this week, and for weeks, I mean for the rest of your life, really, big challenge, is to take some time every now and then and just enjoy for the sake of enjoyment. Take pleasure in the world that God's created. I know there's work to be done. I've got work to do, you've got work to do. We all, like we get it. And work is important because work is how we glorify, how we work is how we glorify God with our responsibilities and the things that we're called upon to provide for ourselves and for the people who rely on us. Work is important. God worked, but God rested. God enjoyed stuff. He takes delight in us. Play then, is how we choose to glorify God because we want to. Because we don't have to work all the time. I don't know how you want to do it. I mean, go drive up to Blue Ridge one night and just leave your cell phone off and get away from the city lights and just look up at the stars, for heaven's sakes. You know, get up early and see the sunrise. And bring somebody with you. Bring your family. Do something. Get out in the world and enjoy it for the sake of enjoying it. Enjoy it because God created it. Because he created it for you. And because it's good. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have placed such a beautiful world before our eyes. And we ask that as we go from here today, into the week, into the month, into the year, that we would not be blind and numb to the wonders that you have created. To all the things in the world around us that point back to you and to the people that you've put in our lives that constantly remind us that we are not alone and that we are created for a purpose. Thank you for the beauty of the world, for the beauty of each other and for the care and the love that you had to create something so beautiful and wonderful and lovely and to put us in it, to enjoy it, as we delight in you, in your name.